Welcome to Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. Relationships are probably where we spend the most time and the most energy in our lives. They can be the sources of our greatest joy, but they can also cause us the deepest pain and frustration. This podcast is about helping you connect a little bit better every day in your relationships. Welcome to episode 28 of Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. Just imagine your custom salon hair color handmade by a colorist and delivered to your front door. Well, that's Delarica Hair Color. It's made in Italy and developed by a board-certified hair colorist who believes everyone deserves rich, creamy hair color, even if you don't have the time or the finances to visit the salon on a regular basis. What makes Delarica Hair Color different is all first-time clients meet with a partner stylist that we call Hair Heroes either online or in one of their partner salons across the U.S. If you're wondering if home hair color is right for you, go to their website and tell them your hair story by answering a few questions. A hair hero will review your hair color profile and let you know if home hair color would be an option for you and consult with you further if needed. Next, Delarica ships your custom color and will meet with you online to help you apply at home if needed. Home hair color just got upgraded. Go to their website, delaricahaircolor.com, and tell them about your hair. That's Delarica, D-E-L-L-A-R-I-C-C-A, haircolor.com. Your hair hero. And I just want to tell you that Delarica, personally, um, it was developed by my hair colorist. And so during COVID, when I couldn't go in for my highlights, um, I did this process myself. So I have used it and it is a wonderful product and it gave me really easy natural results. My husband helped me apply it in the back. My daughter could, I could have done it by myself too, but it's so easy to use. Um, and so go check it out. And thank you for sponsoring this episode, Delarica. Today, my guest is Sissy Goff. Sissy is the Director of Child and Adolescent Counseling at Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville, Tennessee, where she works alongside her counseling assistant slash pet therapist, Lucy the Havanese. Since 1993, she has been helping girls and their parents find confidence in who they are and hope in who God is making them to be, both as individuals and families. Sissy is a sought-after speaker for parenting events and the author of 12 books, including the best-selling Raising Worry-Free Girls and Braver, Stronger, Smarter for Elementary-Aged Girls. And her new release, which we are talking about today, is for teenage girls, and it's called Brave. Sissy is a regular contributor to various podcasts and publications, as well as her own podcast called Raising Boys and Girls. Welcome, Sissy. I am beyond excited to have you here today. I'm so excited to be with you. I wish I was in person. I love Houston and I love Texas. Oh, you do? Yeah, because I saw you were in Austin a few weeks ago. Yes. I went to camp in Texas for six summers. So I will always, oh, a huge part of my heart will always be there. Which camp? It's called Waldemar. It's in the oh, hill yeah, country. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know it. Yeah. Um, I, I, My boys are both in Austin. Um, oh, wow. One, 
Yeah, at UT, one's an undergrad and one's in grad school. And so I saw you were there a few weeks ago and I was like, oh, I wish I were there. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm so excited to have you. When I first started this podcast, you were the most requested guest that people had. So I'm just really excited to have you. And you have this new book, workbook. What do you call it? A workbook? I guess so. That's a good, that's a good question. I should have a formal name for it. Yeah, maybe a workbook. <laughs> well, and I was like, is it a journal? Is it you know? But it's 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 kind of both. there's more content than like a journal would have because there's more yes. than content. It's yes. called Brave, and in Brave, in the introduction, you say that anxiety is not just a childhood ec- epidemic in America today, but it's also a parenting epidemic. And I really love how you put that. Can you explain that? Yes. Well, so I also have two books that came out the year before. So pre-pandemic called Braver, Stronger, Smarter for Elementary Age Girls and then Raising Worry-Free Girls for Parents. And and the publisher actually came to me after a section that we, we have a book called Are My Kids on Track? And after a section yeah. in that book that talked about anxiety and the prevalence with girls, he said, will you write a book for elementary age girls? Because that's when you're saying the age of onset is at the time. That's what I would have said. And I said, you totally get this based on what you do, too. I said, only if I can write one for parents, because it does. I mean, it feels like, I think, so many different things that can go on with kids. But anxiety in particular, I think, I mean, statistically, if as a parent you have anxiety, your kids are seven times more likely to have it themselves. But we see it in our offices daily. I mean, I just so often when I sit with with kids and I say, do you have any family history? A parent will either say, yes, I have anxiety, too, or they'll say, I don't think so. I don't have any anxiety. And it feels palpable in the room. I can already yeah. tell from the yeah, or, that or they do. I'm just a little bit of a worrier. Right. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Or, I mean, I the older I get, the more I come to believe anyone who's type A has some anxiety that they just oh, yeah. funneled into productivity. And so often, you know, I can tell because they're type A. So. But yes. sometimes it's hard to figure out, you know, um, I'm going to be very honest. I don't know if I've said this on the podcast yet, but I'm, I'm 53. I've said that. But I did not realize I had anxiety until I was probably 50 until Hurricane Harvey, because my mom was such a worrier. And this is what fits in that when I became a worrier, my mom would just say, I'm a worry ward. That was her things growing up. I just thought that was normal. And I do this for a living, sissy. I talk to people all day long with anxiety. But I was like, oh, no, I don't have that. I'm just because I'd never had a panic attack or, you know. So I think a lot of parents, when they answer you or me that way, they really don't believe it because it's their normal, right? Yes. Right. Well, and I think for so many, I mean, it looks different for everyone. And I think that's a part of it. And I think so many of us didn't, because you and I are the same age bracket. We didn't grow up with parents who had us in counseling, were in counseling themselves, were talking about, you know, we weren't sitting around passing a feelings chart around the dinner table saying name three emotions, you know, (laughs) so I think we're still catching up. In yeah. a lot of ways. And for some of us, it's not till we get in our 50s that it does dawn on us. Oh, maybe this is what's been going on. I hope it's dawning on us for the rest of our lives that we're learning things about our own growing up and our own emotional lives. 
What I love about Brave, it's called Brave, A Teen Girl's Guide to Beauty, Worry, and Anxiety, is you just, it's so relatable for these teens. And like I said, I have a 14-year-old daughter, and I could just see her really reading this and understanding what you and I didn't understand when we were teens, that we have some agency here. Um, You also say that anxiety is not just an epidemic, but a trend. What do you mean by that? You're probably seeing this too, but I mean, I think part of what is tricky today that it feels like to me is that, I mean, we have swung this wonderful way where kids are much more adept at describing emotions. They understand what's going on inside of themselves in a way that I think we didn't. And as the language has kind of filled in. Mm-hmm. I hear kids th- say things like, I mean, I remember a group of girls saying to me, if you said you were stressed at the lunch table, no one would listen to you. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they don't say I'm worried. They say I have anxiety. They don't say okay. I'm sad. They say I have, I'm depressed. Yeah. They don't say I want to ra- run away from home anymore. They say I want to kill myself as yeah. young as eight. And so I think this intensity of language that they're using now has made it where if I don't use those words, maybe nobody's going to hear me or see mm-hmm. me. And so it feels tricky. I mean, I literally have kids who not only Google different things like that and come into my office and kind of read off what they learned, not literally, they mm-hmm. memorized it because I think they're wanting someone to validate them. And yeah. so unless we use the big words with them, sometimes I think they don't feel validated. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but are you seeing, like, I'm seeing everything really accelerated, like yes. relationally or connection, even like I thought COVID would kind of slow down relationships, but I even see in these teens when they're dating, everything gets serious really quickly, or I've got young adult children in their twenties. Like, I, I just feel like we're, we're this, you know, fast, fast society that even with our feelings, our kids are going from kind of being okay to really not being okay within a really short period of time. I think that's so true. Yes. Yes. And relationally and emotionally in both places, I think you're right. They don't, they don't have a sense of knowing how to slow down, put the brakes on. Yeah. 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 So what do you think is kind of causing that trend? I mean, I, I, I of course think a lot of this is technology, social media, but what else? I definitely think you're right on that. I think that's a huge piece of it because it creates such a false sense of intimacy. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they feel connected in ways that they're not actually. So I think that's part of it. I do think part of it, well, kind of two different ways. I think on one hand, I think in terms of parental child relationships, I feel like we're either swinging towards over attending or under attending with kids sometimes. And when we under attend and, you know, we, we do these parenting seminars on raising worry free kids and we joke around about how I'm a, I don't know if you're an Enneagram person. Are you an Enneagram person? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm, I'm the a one same two. as you. You're <laughs> one too. Okay. Well, I think we're kind of classic under attenders because we're moving so fast and we're so productive. We're getting so much done. We don't have time for the tears or we don't have time for whatever it is. And so sometimes I think kids feel like they have to get bigger to get us to listen. Mm-hmm. And then on the opposite side of that, I think sometimes when we I mean, basically, whatever we pay the most attention to is what's reinforced in kids. And so, like, I remember a girl saying to me, my mom is the most nurturing to me when I have a panic attack. 
Yeah, I read that. Yeah. And she, she was a teenager. So she, I mean, she could verbalize all this. And she said, so it's not like I'm creating them, but I don't stop them because right. I want to have that connection with my mom. And so if yeah. we're paying the most attention when they're in crisis, rather than when they're doing okay and when they're being brave and when they're being resourceful and resilient, I think we're really reinforcing the crisis more than we are their strengths. Yeah. Yeah. I heard um, Jessica Leahy, the author of um, The Gift of Failure. I just interviewed her. She's awesome. Yes. I heard her say this struck me and I think it'll strike you too. strike you as what you're saying is she said back in the day, it used to be called child rearing. Now it's called parenting. Wow. And the focus has been taken almost off the child. That is so interesting. Right. Yes. And I don't know if she got that somewhere. I have to ask her. I emailed her last night. I'm going to have to ask her where that came, if that's her yeah. quote. It just tells you how our shift in parenting has gone. And a lot of that is that over attending, but you're right. And I, I see that I work with the parents, you work with the kids. Right. And I do see that, that, um, you know, are the way that we handle that anxiety. But here's what's tricky for a parent. Then you have a child who really has anxiety and you really connect with them and try to support them during that time. How do you sort of break that cycle of that, not sort of feeding the anxiety? Such a good question. Because of course, as a parent, you love your child and they're in distress. So what else are you going to do, but to step in? And I think we want to step in and then we want to step out. You know, that we're always starting with empathy with kids and then we help move them toward a sense of resourcefulness or agency, to use the word you used mm-hmm. before, competency, that we're saying, I know that that is really hard. What do you want to do or what do you think you can do or what's even the next step? Because I think mm-hmm. that's so much of it for kids is it looks insurmountable. But if we're taking it step by step by step, what do you want to do next? You know, I love AA and the 12 step program. They have so many great sayings. And one of them is do the next right thing, you know, mm-hmm. and so figuring out what's just the next thing. You don't have to think 10 things in advance and learning the skills yourself too with kids so that mm-hmm. you can remind them. One, I did a ton of research on anxiety when I wrote all these books. And one of the things I read that I thought was fascinating was that anxiety has no memory. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because it robs us of our memory. So mm-hmm. when we are have anxiety, we can do all the great things and work through a certain period of it. And then when it comes back again, it's like we've never figured out anything before. We don't have any coping skills. We have no clue what to do. And so to have somebody that can remind us, or I had a group of high school girls I was meeting with three weeks ago and one of the girls was really struggling. And I said in group, which I never do this, but I was like, I want you to pull out your phone and I want you to write down 10 things right now that you can do tomorrow at school when you get anxious. And one of the other girls said, can we all pull out our phones? (laughs) Yes, please. I mean, we all need coping skills in front of us because we don't remember and kids aren't going to remember. And so for a parent, it's why at the end of session so often I'll pull a parent in and say, Okay, I want you to do these things. And I have a lot of parents with the Brave book, with Braver, Stronger, Smarter for Little Girls. They're reading it Mm -hmm. with them, which I love that idea. Your adolescents probably aren't going to want to read a book laying down in the bed at night with you. They might. And if they will, awesome, do it. But otherwise, have them read it first and underline and write in it and pass it off to you. Or get two copies and read one and then ask them questions out of it as they're reading theirs. 
Yeah, yeah. Because that connection dissipates some of the anxiety just naturally. So true. Yes. Yeah. Dr. Hallowell, Ned Hallowell, who writes about ADHD, again, just a very recent guest. He he didn't say this on my podcast either, but he said somewhere else. He said someone told him, if you have to worry, never worry alone. Mm, and I again, I was like, yeah, because if you feel like you have someone you can share these things with, it just kind of lightens that burden that you're carrying. And so that connection and that appropriate connection, like you said, not over attending or under attending with the parent, though, um, is so, so important. You have a chapter in Raising Worry-Free Girls about what happens in the body during anxiety. And I love that you really point that out because a lot of us, again, if you're a one and you're so productive or you're just so trying to get through the day as a parent or even as a teen, you're not always aware of what's happening in your body. Can you talk about that some and some tips and suggestions that you offer? Yes. I mean, it's this amazing way that our bodies are made where they're they're created to respond to a threat or to danger. Yeah. And the problem is that they have kind of a faulty wiring system a lot of times. And so they can perceive threats, as you know, as things that aren't really threats. And so yeah. when that happens, our amygdala gets activated and our sympathetic nervous system kicks into gear. And so our our pupils actually dilate so we can take in the threat better. I mean, there are all these really interesting, our digestion slows down. So it sends yeah. energy to the other parts of our body. I mean, it's really so we can run away from a bear attack or something. Yeah. Although I don't think you're <laughs> supposed to run from a bear, but whatever it is, get away from the threat. And so that system kicks into gear when we get really anxious and the blood vessels in our brain constrict and it shifts the blood flow away from our prefrontal cortex that helps us think rationally and manage our emotions. And it goes to the amygdala and the amygdala is the fight or flight or the reptile part of our brain, whatever we want to call it. And so when that part is activated, I mean, parents will say to me so much in my office, they're like a crazy person. I cannot reason with them. Exactly. (laughs) Because the reasoning part of their brain is not even online. You know, it's just not working. And so until we can get our bodies calmed back down, no other coping skill works. And so having parents or do it with kids, having kids learn ways to deep breathe. And there are a million ways to do it. Thankfully, the way that I do it with kids the most often in my office, I call square breathing. It's called square breathing. Mm -hmm. And so with each line of the square, they breathe a different way and then pause in the corner for three seconds. So like breathe in, pause for three seconds, breathe out over Mm -hmm. and 20 seconds of deep breathing resets the amygdala. Yeah, yeah. And so then they're capable of getting back to a place of rational thought and working themselves out of the anxiety. But again, until we can do that, nothing else is going to help. Now, some kids, you know, they might already be moving up kind of to an escalated place. And with those kids, if you were to say, no, I want you to breathe with me, you know, they're going to be like, Mm -hmm. no. So with those kids, often having them move can be a better primer initially. So having them run a lap around the house or run up and down the driveway or run up and down the stairs or something like that, where they're getting some of that pent up energy out because anxiety really does energize and it's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. It's a protective mechanism. It just doesn't always feel that way. Exactly. And the, the hard part is, you know, we create these neural pathways. And so the amygdala, the more often it's triggered, the more likely it is to get triggered. It becomes what's called hyper responsive. It actually enlarges. And Mm. so, which is why I love breathing, even when we're not 
in our amygdala when we're not feeling triggered. I mean, I, I was walking around my house. I mean, I, my Apple watch prompts me to breathe all the time, which I think is not a great thing about me yeah. <laughs> that I need to be breathing more often. But I mean, I love anytime something that can remind us, which is why I love having a watch that does or, you know, different apps that'll help too. That's so funny you said that because before you even mentioned your watch yesterday, I kind of have a high resting heart rate, no uh-huh. surprise, but um, <laughs> I brought it down in in the year of the pandemic, I walked a lot and I brought it down like 30 points. Wow. I know, but every once in a while I'll feel it, you know, mm-hmm. and I know it's, it's, it's always associated with an anxious thought or right before bed. And I don't have the Apple watch. Oh, it's even on the heart I'm showing you, but I just have this Amazon cheap Fitbit, which I bought for my teen daughter too, because $15 if she loses it or $20. But when I feel that, I start to breathe and I can watch my heart rate come down. Isn't that wild? Yeah, it's it's well, and it's biofeedback essentially. You're your own little mini biofeedback, but it feels so powerful to know that that is in your control because, like you said, when you're in that state of anxiety, you don't feel like you have any control. You don't feel like you can do anything. You don't feel like you're in your head. I know I'm the worst in a crisis, just the worst. And when you were talking, I was like, oh, that's why it all just, it all just goes that part of my brain. Now my husband, no, he can slow down and know what to do. It takes me a little bit longer in, but now I know why, as you explain that. Mm -hmm. You know, and that happens to our kids. Yes. One of the things I love, I'm kind of switching gears because I have a million questions. I could talk to you for hours. Um, You say that in your 25 years, and and we are, we've been in this business about the same amount of time of working with girls. One of the most important things you do is help girls find their voice. And Mm -hmm. I have two boys, right? So one's 23, one's 20. And then I have this 14 year old daughter that we adopted from China. And I definitely worked harder on her finding her voice. The boys had their voice. I didn't have to help them. So so this line struck out to me. And I can say that because I know sometimes, and and I've even seen people are like, well, where's the raising worry-free boys? Or, you know, but but it is different. The the pressures these kids are under, the you don't, sometimes you have to have help a boy find their voice, but what do you mean by that for girls? Why is that so important? And how do we as parents help our girls find their voices? Well, I think anxiety really muffles a girl's voice in so many ways because she's doubting herself. You know, I I have been doing parenting seminars for a long time too. And, and used to, I would talk about how elementary age girls, had this lack of self-consciousness that was really rampant among the elementary school years. And I don't think they have it anymore. Mm. I think that has shifted considerably because anxiety has become so rampant Mm -hmm. among girls in particular. Girls are definitely leading the statistics. Girls are twice as likely to develop anxiety as boys. And I think it really muffles them because it makes them doubt themselves. It makes them doubt their voice. It makes them doubt their choices. And so they're not, you know, a second grader, our hope would be would feel so free to raise her hand in class because she hasn't hit that point where she's, you know, that imaginary audience that we both studied in school that with adolescence, self-consciousness does come just developmentally where they're thinking, is everyone watching me? Right. They shouldn't be thinking that in second grade. They should be free to be themselves and feel some confidence in that. And I just don't think they do anymore. And I think some of that is pressure that does start early on. Like you said, I think without us ever intending to, I think 
girls are just feeling it. I mean, they're feeling more pressure. I'm hearing more girls talk about being disappointed with 98s and 99s in school than I've ever heard. I mean, and I don't, again, I don't think parents are necessarily doing anything. I think it's just this culturally, there's this sense of they've got to perform really well in school and athletics and um, artistically and all the different areas of life. There's just got to be this excellence all the time. And they've got to be really nice. Yeah. I mean, I never saw little girls try to be people pleasers so much as I see now. Like I would always see adult women, but now it's, it's definitely the little girls. Starts so early. Yeah. And you're right. And they, they talk amongst themselves about their grades. Like I don't remember growing up ever really talking about my grades with my peers. No, I don't either. At, at all until I got older. And I think one of the dangerous things about girls, because one of the things I learned too in the research is that whereas girls deal with anxiety twice as often, boys are taken in for therapy more. Yeah, I saw that. Okay, why? I know. It makes me so sad for girls. I'm thrilled for boys that they're getting help. But I think it's because girls who are anxious fly below the radar. You know, they are the girls and parent teacher conferences that the teachers say, I wish every girl in my class was like Mm -hmm. your daughter. You Mm -hmm. know, they're conscientious and they're trying hard and they care a lot. They're really bright. I mean, every girl literally I've ever met with has all of those things in common. It's why I called the little girls book Braver, Stronger, Smarter, because Mm -hmm. those things are true about them. And so I think because they're trying so hard out of a need to please other people and out of a fear-based place, we don't know that. And we often don't recognize the behaviors that are anxiety until much later, until they start to drive us crazy. Because yes, they're great at school, but they're difficult at home at some point. Mm -hmm. And so then I think we finally take them in for help. But I think otherwise we end up reinforcing the very behavior that's fear-driven. Yeah, that that people pleasing because yes. they're easy, right? Right. And so it's kind of like why girls are underdiagnosed with ADHD because they look like the dreamer versus the you know kid who's climbing the walls, the boy. And so that it's right. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess maybe girls go inward more, and boys the behavior goes outward more. Exactly. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I read some study forever ago that I will never forget that talked about how when something goes wrong in a boy's world, he blames someone else. And when something goes wrong in a girl's world, she blames herself. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of that inward. Yeah, that's true. It always makes me nervous because my my 14 year old is, um, she's doing online school so well. And she's so happy. Like this year hasn't knocked her down. Like it's knocked a lot of kids down. And um, the one thing is, and this kind of leads into the other question is she has this passion. She's a passionate dancer and a a gifted dancer. And so she has dance every night and her people are her dance people. So she gets to see them, but I'm constantly checking in with her because she is, she does fly under the radar. The teachers love her. She never makes a fuss. She follows all the directions. Teachers say she's such a hard worker and I'm constantly checking in with her on anxiety and I don't see it. And she says it's not there. And so, you know, but but there's the, you know, the professional in me that's like, maybe I'm not digging hard enough. You yes. Know, you know, but you, I know like headaches, stomach aches, sometimes those are kind of clues for yes, absolutely. where it's hiding in our girls, right? Yes, definitely. And I think one of the biggest ways that I feel like parents start to recognize it as we're putting things together. I mean, little girls, parents will say they're controlling or they're manipulative. And I think some of that is, you know, they don't have words yet to say, 
when you change my schedule at the last minute, it makes me anxious. And so yeah. then when you're driving them home from school and tell them the plan changed at the last minute, they fall apart. I would fall right. apart if you changed my plans for the day <laughs> and I had no say in it, you know? So I think part that's part of it with little girls. And, and also they create these, so many girls have bedtime routines you know, that you have to every night say a certain thing, a certain way in a certain order. And if you get off the order, you have to repeat the whole thing mm -hmm. or even getting out of the car at school. And I mean, you know this too, but kids are amazing in how they create basically in lieu of other coping strategies, they create them. And that's yeah. what that is. Kids are often most anxious at bedtime. And so they create these little rituals that the danger is then they get tied to the ritual and they think the ritual is what's keeping them safe right. when that's not it at all. But that's right. what they're doing. They're feeling anxious. So they make these routines that we have to go through with them. Yeah. Which make us crazy sometimes. I think that's another they way do. often we recognize it or repetitive questions. You know, kids who are anxious are always the ones who will say, tell me what we're doing again tomorrow. Tell me, go over the schedule with me. You know, they have a lot of questions like that. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a great key for parents to clue in on. That's a great one. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Well, one of the things I love that you say, and I talk to a lot of my clients about this, is confidence is key to reducing anxiety. You say confidence and anxiety are antithetical to each other. And so what are some of the things, as I get this all the time, you probably do too, what are some of the things parents can do to help their daughters build confidence? Because they always say to me, what can I do to build my daughter's confidence? I'm like, no, 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 no. You can can help your daughter build her confidence. That's a great distinction. Right? Yes, exactly. I love that. I mean, I think, I think one thing I would say is what are you doing for your daughter right now? She can do for herself. Right. Yeah. Because I think that's part of the problem sometimes is we're not letting them learn to do things. And so they mm -hmm. don't feel as capable. So to think about something like that. And then I would say every opportunity we have to remind her that she can do whatever it is that's in front of her. You got mm -hmm. this. Like that just mm -hmm. becomes one of our mantras for her as she's growing up. Like, I believe in you. You're ready. You can do it. And even if she says, mom, I can't. Yes, you can. You can mm -hmm. do it. I believe in you that we yeah. just say those words over and over to the degree that we're driving them crazy that they mm -hmm. hear it so much. But I think rather than, I think that's honestly, I think that's one of the biggest problems is that we're stepping in and fixing it for her, rescuing for her. I mean, the two most common parenting strategies in light of anxiety are escape and avoidance. So helping mm. them get away from whatever's making them anxious rather than giving them the tools and helping them move them forward towards it. I just did a CEU with, um, I, I say with, she didn't know I was there, but Tina Bryson, who I love. Oh, yeah. You need to have her on. And she talked about um, pushing and cushing, which I thought was such mm -hmm. a great thing to say that that's, we live in this balance between the two of you. I mean, I, I see more parents who are cushing only today than I've ever seen before. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. My oldest um, is 23 and he's just not. He hates making decisions. I forget what um, Enneagram he is, but he's the peacemaker. The nine, maybe. maybe. Nine. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> but as a result, he really struggles with decisions. And he would literally call me in college and say, should I go to, you know, the Bible stage tonight, mom? Or should I go to the fraternity bowling? And of course, <laughs> I, I want to say, go to the Bible study. <laughs> right? Sure. But, but I realized every time he would call me with a decision, 
or should I take this class or this class? If I gave him advice, he'd call with the next one. And I started doing just what you said. And it was hard because, you know, he was across the country in Ohio and I'm here in Texas. And that was a way to bond when he right. came to me for advice. I wanted to give it to him. Like what mom doesn't want to give their, what sure. mom doesn't want their 20 year old coming for advice. Right. But I knew that every time I did that, I was enabling him to feel anxious about his decisions. And so I started to, I said, I believe in you. You're going to make the right choice. Great. And yes. that was hard. Yeah. I always wanted to say, go to Bible study. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I started doing that. And you know what? He stopped. He, you know, not that he never asks my advice because he still does from time to time, but it's so few and far between because he needed to know First of all, there's not really a wrong decision right. in a lot of the things, this class or this class, right. you know. But secondly, that you've got it in you. And today with parents doing their kids' homework and their projects and, you know, kids aren't driving. What's Do you notice that? Kids are not getting their license at 16. I do notice that. Yes. I think it's part of the same idea. I think they're fearful and we're not, we're cushioned too much and not pushing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so it, it, if people just practice that self-discipline for parents to say, I believe in you, you've got this, I know you'll make a good decision, mm-hmm. that kind of buoys them up to believe in themselves and that dissipates some of the anxiety. Even to sit down with your kids and say, hey, tell me some places I can encourage your independence. They oh. might even say, I don't want you to. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I think if the child says that, then you know it's time to start pushing them out mm-hmm. of the nest to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's good. And then I always think like, what do you think about, and I, and I don't think I came across this, but what are your thoughts and what do you see in your practice? I feel like sometimes girls, would, to build that confidence, sometimes in themselves, it's just really helping them find an area that they feel strong in, like martial arts or dance or art or chess or you know, yes. I see a lot of the a lot of the young women and, and girls who really have something they're passionate about don't struggle as much with anxiety. Mm, I think that makes so much sense. I don't know if there's studies on that. Yes. I, well, yes. Mary Piper. I don't know if you, I mean, she was writing mm-hmm. a long, long time ago. She called it a North Star that she felt like oh. all girls needed some type of North Star to kind of help guide them. But I think since she wrote that, which was probably in the early 2000s. If I had to guess, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, since then, what I have seen is that North Star has become a weight on their back. And oh. because I think we've shifted more towards that, I've got to do it perfectly. And oh, so yeah. I think when we can help them distinguish between passion and perfection, mm-hmm. that feels key in it. Because I think if they're doing it because they're passionate about it and they love it and it's okay for them to learn and to grow and make mistakes, I think it really can offset the anxiety. But I think if it becomes a place that they have to strive for perfection too, I don't think it really helps them. Oh, Sissy, that is such a great point. And I hadn't thought about it because, yeah, if you're playing soccer because you love soccer, that's going to help your confidence yes. and help you feel you're doing it for a purpose. Yes. Versus if you're playing soccer because your parents telling you girls get soccer scholarships or golf. Sco- I hear that a right. lot. Like golf scholarships for girls now, I guess, are a thing. And so, you know, the, yeah, you're uh, that's right. So it's kind of, it's not just finding something, it's finding something that they love that just fills them up versus they've got to achieve this status or this, this place or this rank. Right. Yes. That they're probably putting on themselves that they've got to achieve this rank, but still they feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, so much good stuff. All right. Uh, let's see. We talked, uh, well, we didn't call it this, but we touched on this was um, parental accommodation. Yeah. Um, and, and so explain that term for people. I see this all the time with working with parents, but how is that impacting them specifically with anxiety? Well, I think it's that kind of that escape and avoidance. It's parents who mm-hmm. are the snowplow parents, you know, I mean, the parents who are really paving the road for them. And I mean, enabling sounds like a really strong word, but I would say to some degree, that's what I think they're doing. And I see it all the time with kids because, again, you feel like your kids are stressed and you're worried about their level of worry. And so you don't want them to feel bad. I mean, we start that so early on. And so I think accommodating and I mean, kids who are anxious become some of the most demanding kids and manipulative kids that I ever see. And I think it's because of that, because they feel like my life depends on getting out of this situation or this certain Mm -hmm. thing happening. And so they're going to be very convincing to you to step in and fix it for them. Yeah. And I think we're doing them such a disservice when we do that. Yeah, because they're not learning the skills they need as an adult. And this leads into the next question. So what I hear you saying is instead of as parents stepping around the problem all the time, make them walk through it with you next with the support or a helper, but just avoiding whatever makes them anxious all the time. Right. Just we're never going to teach them how to deal with it because you say, I love this. Your book's so realistic. Um, And I love this. You you know, you, you just, you say, our kids need to know that life's not without troubles. Yes. Oh, and I love the scripture. I, I That's the other thing I want to say. I love the scripture that is throughout your books too. Um, but you say that anxiety may never completely go away and we're going to have troubled lives. That was never promised to us that we would have trouble-free lives. So how do we as parents model those expectations for our kids? I, I mean, I think some of it is what we do share at the dinner table. What we talk about from our own lives, like, man, it was hard to do whatever it was today, but I got through it. Or my, you know, I talk about in the Brave book, The Worry Whisperer, naming Mm -hmm. our worries. And in the little girl's book, I call it The Worry Monster. But my worry monster was talking to me or The Worry Whisperer was after me today when I did such and such. And I surprised myself because I did it, that we tell those stories in front of them. I think modeling, you know, that whole idea that they learn so much more from modeling than from direct teaching. And so when we're saying that in front of them, when we're doing hard things with them, and I think too, when we're as a family, I think when they're watching us even fail and learn to do hard things, I heard Jennifer Garner on a podcast talking about yesterday and she was talking about that very thing. And I loved it. It was awesome of how important it is for our kids to see us not be good at something. And for them to do things that they're not good at, too, where they're learning it. We're all learning it together. We're all growing together. Yeah, I love that. So have our kids see us do things we're not good at. Because, yeah, that's hard sometimes. Yes. Yes. Well, because as adults, we don't have time, really. You know, we're only doing the things that we enjoy and feel like we're somewhat competent at. But to take up tennis or to take up whatever, even if you're doing it with them, you know. Yeah. It's a great. Yeah. And I, I think that to go out on that limb is a little, it's tough. I I know, um, you know, we're in Texas and I never grew up with any guns or shooting, but everybody shoots down here. (laughs) And my eldest son during COVID, there was nothing we could do. And everybody was quarantined. And and he said, we could go out and shoot, you know, clay pigeons. We're not like killing anybody, but you can, you know, go out to 
I guess it's a big sport. I grew up up north, so I didn't know that. But um, oh my gosh, sissy, I have no hand-eye coordination. <laughs> I cannot hit that clay pigeon. But and and I hate guns. I hate guns. I'm, I I just talk about anxiety. They bring up anxiety. But my boys re- and my daughter really want to. And and let me tell you, she kicked butt. She was so good. That's awesome. But we went out to a shooting range and I did what was really scary and hard for me. And I was terrible at it. I think they finally got me. I think I did hit one finally and they all cheered. But they kind of laughed seeing me awkwardly hold this. I don't know if it was a rifle. I don't even know what it was. But <laughs> but yeah, to go out there yeah. and do something that they, yes. they knew I was afraid of. Mm, right. Because they right. knew my whole life. I talked to them about how uncomfortable guns made me. Um and they knew, you know, that I'm I'm not sporty like that. I'm not good like that. Um, I just laughed. That was the only one at the uh, Texas Country Shooting Range in Lily Pulitzer. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. That's awesome. That's yes. more me than the camo. Like, but, uh, <laughs> but you know what? My kids, honestly, I bet you if we asked them what their favorite memory during that quarantine time was, I bet it was that time we went out to that shooting range. I bet you're right. Yes. Yes. Because it was totally out of our box. And yes. I hadn't thought about it until this conversation. And helps you all laugh. I think it's so good for kids not to see us take ourselves so seriously. I mean, all of those things are so good. Yeah. But you're right. It's so hard. And that movie, I watched it this weekend, um, yesterday. Mm-hmm. I have an acquaintance on Instagram. Her husband was the producer. And um, so she kept messaging me, have you watched it yet? Have you watched it yet? And I think it's, um, I could so identify with the mom and how she felt and that, you know, it's so hard to just kind of let the walls down and just, we need just all need to have more fun in our family. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Cause it's heavy right now. So um, what are some specific ways that parents or adults can create security um, and help the anxious girls in their lives? Cause it doesn't have to be just parents. It can be teachers no. and coaches. Yes, right? definitely. I mean, I, what I have been saying to parents, but I think this can be true for anybody who loves kids. But what I've been saying to parents a lot lately, I, I mean, I feel like right now parents are so, and I know you're hearing it, parents are so overwhelmed. I've never had as many parents in tears in my office as I have in the last mm-hmm. few months. I think there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of feeling like I just can't get it right. And so what I have been saying is I want you to spend 10 minutes a day with each of your kids. Just Mm -hmm. 10 minutes where you're looking them in the eye, where you're listening to them, where you're not teaching them. You're not trying to rush them into the next thing they're doing, but you're just spending time with them. And I think that can create profound amounts of security in kids. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, we sit here in 10 minutes doesn't sound like a lot, but it becomes in our day, we just lose it and we don't end up doing that so much of the time. And so I feel like just that kind of time, I mean, like we were talking about in the beginning, kind of wraps back around to that, 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 that sense of attunement of getting down on their level and hearing them and connecting with them eyeball Mm -hmm. to eyeball or shoulder to shoulder, especially if you have boys shoulder to shoulder, um, you know, that just, it, there's so much scientifically that it does for kids. It creates security. It promotes attachment. It builds self-regulation. I mean, there's so many great Mm -hmm. skills that that kind of investment in time does. So I think that's definitely one of the biggest things that I'm saying in the last month to parents, I want them to be mm-hmm. doing right now. Yeah. And it's funny. I'll sometimes tell parents that and they'll say, Oh, Kim, I don't have time. Mm. And I say, if you realize how much time that actually saves you when yes. you do that, 
Because when you have that attunement, you have that connection, all the other problems that take a lot of time, all those other fires that you have to put out, they kind of go away. Yeah, because the fires often are trying to get you attuned to them. Yeah. yeah. I I wish I learned a little early on, but I know at one point I learned that I'll tell you what I had a really my best friend from college. She had four kids and I had three kids and we were kind of in the trenches, you know, they were younger and we made a pact to every night when we went to bed, try and see if we had one meaningful connection with each kid Mm. because we were so busy, sissy, keeping them alive, Mm -hmm. making sure they were fed, making sure they were at school, making sure they were at practice, driving carpool, making sure a good dinner was on the table, making sure their homework got done, that we weren't meaningfully connecting just with who they were every day. And when I started doing that, everything changed for me with my kids and with myself. I enjoyed being a mom more, which I'm embarrassed to say I wasn't enjoying. (laughs) Well, sure. But it was just, I mean, a switch when I focused on one meaningful connection with each kid every day. And so at the end of the night, I would realize, oh, I didn't didn't really get that with that kid. So make sure I'd get that Mm. the next day because some days you miss Mm -hmm. it. But you're right. It just changes everything Mm -hmm. for you and for them. Yes. And I think so often we think a meaningful connection is us teaching them something and them saying, oh, I never (laughs) thought of that or I haven't done that before. Instead, Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, just that time. It's letting them explain that Lego for yes, you. Or, yes, or teach you how to play the video game even, which doesn't feel meaningful yeah. at all to you. Yeah, that meaningful connection is not a big thing. It's not baking a cake together necessarily. It it could be just sitting there listening about, you know, I don't know, the Roblox. I don't even know what these <laughs> Yeah, but the parents tell me like I don't know what they're talking. Just listen. Right, you don't have to know. Just listen, <laughs> and to say, tell me more about that. Like, what a great thing if we yep. don't know. Let them teach you. Yeah, exactly. So, so I'm going to throw you a little curveball because I thought of this question um, just as we were talking, and I kind of jotted some things down. But for some kids, okay, especially kids with social anxiety. Mm-hmm. This year at home has been kind of nice for them. Like I'm talking to some parents that they're like, my kid's better than they've ever been. They don't ever want to go back to school. They don't have to worry about who they're going to sit with at lunch. Are they going to sit by themselves? They don't have to worry about if they're going to get invited to the big party because there are no big parties. And so they're not worried about being that left out kid, which in middle school and high school, that's a lot of your anxiety, right? And so some of these teens are more anxious about returning to school and socializing again. How how can we best help those kids? So where I am, we're pretty much back. I mean, kids are back in school, oh. back doing the things. And I would say, I mean, I think you're exactly right. It gets a lot worse around the time it's starting to come back up. And so, I mean, I think one thing we can think about doing where we are now, wherever you are as you're listening, is think about what it would look like for them to do one brave thing each week. And help them come up with a list of things, ways they can kind of practice that. Because for them, I mean, I had a girl that I was, that I have in one of my groups and she has been at home. Her school has been, our in Nashville Metro schools have been at home longer than any other schools. And she goes to college in the fall and she kept saying, what am I going to do if I don't go back to high school? And then I go to college and I have had no practice in crowds or anything like that. And, and she's ending up back in school this spring. But I think 
to help them to figure out places we can put them, even if it is beyond what makes us feel comfortable. If that like your daughter's going to dance, you know, anything we can mm -hmm. do to get them connecting with other kids, to get them outside of the home, to get them in places that maybe make them a little nervous, a little nervous is going to be, it's going to be good for them to be a little nervous multiple times before yeah. they're a lot nervous and they go back to school just to have practice in those places and doing things. And even if it's something like not necessarily dealing with crowds, but you're going and learning a sport together as a family that you, you're playing pickleball and yeah. you've never done that before, you know, just yeah. whatever it looks like for them to try and practice brave things that are out of their comfort zone. I think right now is one of the best things we can do for kids to prepare them for moving back into those places. That's great advice. As you were talking, I thought about something. I thought, you know, there's this image out there. I see it especially on the tween and teen social media about a squad, right? And um, everybody's got a group, a squad. And then this anxiety, some of the social anxiety comes, well, and even adult women, you know, like everybody's got a girl crowd. I don't, I have lots of friends or acquaintances. I have lots of acquaintances and a couple close friends. Don't you think, I feel like we need a campaign to let boys and girls know one or two good friends is all That's you need. So you true. don't need this squad, yes. right? Because everybody who doesn't have that is walking around feeling like something's wrong with them and nothing's wrong with them. And girls them. feel that way anyway. So we're just heaping yeah. it on. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're exactly right. I think there are a lot of things we could do to help shift girls' perspective on friendships that I think as women, we make a lot worse. Yeah. We could yeah. have a whole nother podcast yeah, because, on that. <laughs> I know. I know. I want to think about that because I think that's part of the problem with social anxiety in these young kids is they think there's a way their friendship life is supposed mm -hmm. to look. Because they've got to and show it on social media. Yeah, Whereas when we yeah. were growing up, we might have felt like there was a way it was supposed to look, but no one was watching. And now everyone's watching. You're right. Yeah. In fact, yesterday driving home, um, I had the first brunch outside with a friend. Way to go. And my daughter. Yeah. My daughter, a dance friend who's going to be a senior in high school at the performing arts school that my daughter is going to go to, invited my daughter who's going to be a freshman uh, and a small. Oh, Wow. Isn't that beautiful? That's and wonderful. she wanted my daughter to tell, give her all the ropes. And so I thought, how wonderful she's going to grow in knowing a senior in this yes. program who's looking out for her. But we had brunch and on the way home, you know, we were talking about how high school is going to look differently for her and social media and she, and how how do you meet kids from other high schools? Because this performing heart, arts high school is really small. So they don't have a lot of social things, dances and stuff. Mm -hmm. And we we're talking about Snapchat. And I was like, oh, oh, I mean, she has Instagram, but only the people that we really know. Yeah. And I really kind of pulled her through uh -huh. it. And, and you know what she said? She goes, mom, I don't think I want Snapchat. Wow. She said, I don't think it would be good for me to see all that. Mm -hmm. And because that's, that's where people are inviting. That's where they are showing that. And she's like, I just don't think it would be healthy for me. And I was like, yes. <laughs> that's <laughs> wonderful. You're right. It's the more of that they see, the more that it, it seems and feels like it should be normal. Yes. And that's a lot of pressure lot because of it's pressure. not going to be like that for everybody. Right. Exactly. And it has more to do with your personality than it does your friendship skills. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because even in those big groups, there's not always deep connection. Right. Yes. Oh, exactly. There's often not deep connection. 
Yeah. Yeah. It looks really fun, mm-hmm. but it could be kind of empty. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think we need to, we need to kind of redefine friendship for our kids. So they, I think that would help with social anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We need to think about that. Susie. I love that plan. <laughs> That's good. Um, and talk about that. Yeah. Maybe we can do another episode. So I love, like I said in the beginning, um, brave, I'm holding it up. Not that anybody can see it, but I will post pictures of it. Cause it's so pretty too. It, 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 um, it glows. <laughs> it has like a sheen. I don't know what that is, but it's very, it's very, very pretty. But can you tell us who it's best for and how to encourage our girls to use it? Because like I said, I have a 14 year old daughter and I wouldn't let her have it um, yet because I needed it for this interview. But like I could see with a teen saying, oh, here, I got you this. And then like, I don't want to read that. You know, right. how do we, what's the best way to introduce it and, and to kind of encourage them to work through it? I think, so it is for teen girls. And if you have younger girls, mm-hmm. braver, stronger, smarter for them. And I would, I think if, uh, I think girls are more aware of the anxiety that that they're carrying sometimes than we are. And so I think if you have a daughter who doesn't really push against as much, I think you could say, hey, I heard about this book on a podcast. Would you ever want to read it? And they would likely say Mm -hmm. yes. If Mm -hmm. you have a daughter who's a little more, um, likes to go her own way. I think what I would probably do is buy it and put it on her bedside table and never say a word about it. Don't even acknowledge that you bought it because I think she'll be curious about it. And hopefully the back cover will hook her in. And then, you know, she might not even want you to know that she's reading it, but you can check Mm -hmm. a little bit later. But I think I would be probably pretty subtle about it. I think if you're right, if you have most adolescents, if you said, I want you to read this book, that's the last book they're going to read. Yeah. So yep. it's true. That's how I get my kids to read devotionals. I would, I wouldn't like, I would either get up for them for Christmas, but I wouldn't mention it. Like it would be under the tree, but, or I just put it on their bedside. That's great. <laughs> and yeah. that's how my boys, and I, they would end up, but you're right. If I kind of made a big deal about it or tried to push it on them, it would be the last thing they yes, would read. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, really loved it. I want it for me. Actually. <laughs> I, need, I need to get one for me because it just gives you something to do with all those feelings yes. that you have a way to write them down. The prompts are really, really yeah. good. And it just kind of, you introduce the concept and then you have them apply it, which is really, really what we need to be doing. We need to teach them these mm-hmm. skills. All right. I know everybody knows where they can find you, but for the the one person who might not, can you tell us where people can find you if they want to learn more and any exciting projects you have coming up? Well, um, brazenboysandgirls.com is where they can find us or on Instagram. I try, especially in the pandemic, I'm trying to be pretty active on Instagram to help people right now Mm because there's just so much. And so Sissy Goff on Instagram or Raising Boys and Girls, either place. And Hmm. What I have coming up, I'm, I'm noodling on a new book idea, but I don't think I'm ready to say it out loud yet, okay, but okay. more for us for sure as grownups. And we have one thing I'm excited about is we did, we went to North Point Community Church not long ago in Atlanta mm-hmm. where Andy Stanley's the pastor. And we recorded a version of the parenting seminar, Are My Kids on Track? That your wow. church can purchase or you can purchase on your own. It's not out yet. It will be in the next couple months. So that's a project I'm excited about. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. All of your books are so wonderful. You've written 12? 12. 12 Yeah. 
kind of wow. fly. And I love, um, I had never really seen um, pictures of Daystar until recently, but you know, it just looks so pretty. And I love how you describe it in the books. It's like, I, who wouldn't want to go there with Lucy? <laughs> I know. With Lucy. Lucy's a great help. Is she there with you? She is. I'm at home still today. I haven't gone to work yet. She's like a little star. She is like my little buddy. She does a great job working with me. She's a Havanese. For yeah. anyone who's listening and doesn't know who we're talking about, I have a Havanese okay. who goes to work with me every day. We have five dogs on staff at Daystar. Who so many kids will the parents will bring them in and they'll say, "Is a dog here today?" That's the only reason I could get my child to come, <laughs> which I love. Yeah, yeah. it was br- it was brilliant. I think really, um, yeah. It just sounds like the warmest, coziest place to be. And I know you're helping so many people. Thank, Thank you so you. much for your time. Yes. Well, I'm so delighted to be with you. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. Hopefully you've heard something that will help you as you continue to navigate the connections in your everyday relationships. If you'd like to connect with me on Instagram, you can follow me at Dr. Kim Swales or check out my website, www.kimswales.com. I'd also love if you would click subscribe and leave a positive review or a five-star rating for the podcast, as well as share it with your friends and family. The material in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you are in need of medical or psychological counsel, please seek a licensed professional in your area. This episode was edited and produced by Sonia Kerrigan.